Gen X Playback, episode number seven. Faster than the speed of light, it's Gen X Playback. Hello, everyone. We are the Brothers High. I'm Scott. And I'm Sean. And it is our pleasure to give you yet another episode of uh, times gone by, some some favorite memories in the past. Um, we've covered everything from sports to music to entertainment to television to movies and we've done a little bit of everything, a little bit of sampling from from our uh, from our generation. That is, uh, you know, the time when we grew up. And um, are we the fastest growing podcast in in uh, what do we say, Nestville, it, Pennsylvania? So <laughs> I think so. I think we are the fastest growing podcast in Nestville, Pennsylvania. That might it might be safe to say, but um, since Sean is an attorney, we may have to deal with that in a little, you know, in, in a little bit later time. Well, they, there's a little backstory to this. You know, tell the story about our dad. So when our dad, uh, growing up, he had a um, auto auto repair shop and a gas station. And we grew up in a very small town known as Nestville, Pennsylvania. So in Nestville, Pennsylvania, there was a grand total of four gas stations. And I think we were the only one that sold tires. I like, think we were. That stocked tires. And... Years later, probably about maybe 10 years ago, I came across a business card that he had, and it was for High Sunoco. And in the little catchphrase said, the largest tire store in Nesville. That's right. And it, it was true. Well, I mean, maybe, you know, but th- there was no there was no validation uh, of that. But still, hey, you know, and so we decided we're going to do the same thing. We are the, the largest podcast in Nesville, Pennsylvania. There you go. So we'll make, we'll make that claim. You know, there are some some artists and some singers out there who also make claims to songs. You know, we were kind of joking about that at dinner time when we were getting ready, uh, did a little bit of show prep. Uh, so, yeah, look, a little poetic creative license there. So, uh, take it for what it's worth. It, it may or may not be uh, a fast-growing podcast at all. But back when Sean and I had our radio days when we used to do uh, sports broadcasting, we worked for an AM radio station back in the day. Mm-hmm. We did uh, football and basketball games. And our first station at nighttime had a total of 15 watts, right? W- which is not much more than a transistor radio. And we were convinced that we were actually just talking to ourselves. So, And I still think we were just talking to ourselves. <laughs> but, uh, you know, thanks to the, the magic of Anchor and Spotify, where we can actually see some some feedback on who's been listening to our podcast it's nice to see that there is a slightly growing number of people that that take the same interest in the past that we do and like to relive these fond memories oh and I, you know that's something that one of the main reasons why we even started the podcast is because when you and i get together this is what we like to do we like to reminisce about the good old days and especially the pop culture and and a lot of music references there's a ton of music references whenever we we meet with one another and you know, over the years, you know, Scott and I were kind of just doing independent research on our So we thought, hey, let's just go ahead and put it out there. And that's kind of what we're doing. And I think with tonight, with the episode we're going to have uh, for this uh, episode seven, you know, we're going to focus in on music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'll go right back to the 80s once again. And one, one, it was my turn to choose this week. And I think what I wanted to, you know, I think the last couple uh, podcasts that we did were a little bit more in the... I wouldn't say almost like a classroom style where we're, we're sort of like giving the history of something. And uh, this particular episode, what I wanted to do was really to get not only, uh, you know, Sean's 
you know, personal feedback from, you know, what he thinks now, maybe even how he thought back in the 80s or what I felt in the 80s. But this is kind of an interactive where if you're listening to this podcast, there's never a right or wrong for like favorites of something or what is the best. That's why I always found it interesting when like Rolling Stone would come out with the top 100. Right. You know, it was always very subjective because they would always throw somebody in there that you're looking like, you got to be crazy. You know, it, it's funny you say that because I looked at Rolling Stone's top 100 list for the albums of the 1980s and my reaction to some of those was, you got to be crazy. We made no bones about it when we started this podcast that Sean and I were, were fans of pop music. And, you know, we also, we also have, and you'll, you'll kind of get a, a sense of that tonight, I think, when we start to talk about some of our favorite albums of the 1980s, you'll kind of get a sampling as to, it's a little bit of a window into who we were, maybe as we were younger, or as we got older, by the, obviously, when you're starting out the 80s, we're very young, by the end of the 80s, we're basically out of school and now young adults, so obviously our musical tastes are going to be quite different. Sure. And so I think you're going to see a little bit of that in uh, in this episode. So what I wanted to do first was just kind of let's kind of get the prime the pump here, so to speak. So there's a there's two uh, lists that I wanted to go through first before we started to do anything else. And the first list I wanted to talk about was the best selling albums of all time. I'm talking like from the day that they were released until today, because obviously people still continue to buy or had purchased up to a certain degree for for decades even after even after the release of the album and i think when you see the uh the comparison between the two lists it's going to it's i think you'll find that it's a little bit of an interesting twist because there's going to be some names in there that you wouldn't necessarily expect to hear or maybe you hadn't heard them in a while okay all right so first what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to go through the uh the best-selling albums of all time and i think to do that properly, I think it's fair to give out like an honorable mention. So I'm going to, I'm going to list six albums that were, uh, just outside the top 10, but they weren't that far outside the top 10. And I think they deserve a mention because of the magnitude of the artist and the, um, the album itself, because all of these albums were extremely well known and sold a obviously millions of copies. All right, right. Go ahead. So honorable mention first goes to uh, Whitney Houston with her second album Whitney, and that uh, sold a total of fourteen point four million copies. Now, this was another issue that I came up with when I was trying to do research for this particular podcast. If there were a lot of times, if you went on to research like the number of units sold you would always get all these different numbers. Like everybody seemed to have a different list. So what the one I ended up settling on, and this is uh, worldwide sales. This isn't just in the United States because there are quite a few lists that are like that, particularly the, uh, it's called the RIAA, which is uh, stands for uh, Record Industry Association of America. So they only track sales in the United States. And since we actually do have an international listener, I thought it wouldn't be fair because we're only charting things that are in the United States. So I figured let's try and find something that is international and this would be all units reported. All right. So that that's the, the basis of this list. So it's all sold units reported. All right. Okay. Okay. So as I said, uh, honorable mention goes to Whitney Houston's second album, Whitney. That sold 14.4 million copies. Uh, 
Also, right, right in front of that, with 14.5 million copies, is Madonna's True Blue. That's kind of a forgotten album. A little uh, bit. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of focus goes on uh, work before and after. Uh, True Blue was a huge smash and was, was a, you know, ran on the charts for a couple of years. So I think that deserves, you know, some mention right there. Uh, also, honorable mention, uh, Slippery When Wet, Bon Jovi. That just might be on my list. <laughs> 15.3 million copies sold worldwide. Uh, again, huge smash. Yeah. One of our favorites of sure. all time. Uh, also, honorable mention, Prince and the Revolution with Purple Rain, the mm -hmm. Purple Rain soundtrack. 15.7 million copies sold worldwide. That did not crack the top 10. Um, at uh, Also, honorable mention, Madonna again, Like a Virgin. This was the album that came out before True Blue. So you can kind of imagine back-to-back -back albums that sold uh, 14 and 16 million copies. Uh, she was doing pretty well in the 80s. She was doing well, yes. And also on the list, honorable mention twice, Whitney Houston, her debut album, Sold 16.6 .6 million copies worldwide. Do you think people remember how big Whitney Houston was? Whitney Houston uh, was, uh, I would hope so. Because, she, I mean, she didn't have the long, sustained career of some of the other artists, like a Madonna. Madonna is still rele relevant, remained relevant for a long time. But Whitney Houston just burst on the scene like a, like a shooting star. And there for a while, she was the biggest thing in show business. Yeah, she her career started roughly around 1985, and by 1992, I mean she'd already sold like 200 million records. Uh, so it was, yeah, I mean to say it was quick when, when you consider some bands like the Rolling Stones have mm -hmm. been around for a hundred years. Right. You know, Whitney Houston's career pretty much was about maybe 10 to 12 years in its in its peak. Maybe, you know, I would say mid 90s with the Preacher's Wife was probably like the kind of the you know the end as the career started to go down a little bit right um but yeah you're only talking maybe 10 10 11 12 years so right so i'm not surprised here any of the whitney houston albums on the uh on, the, on your list okay all right so let's hit our top 10 and, uh, and there's definitely going to be some some uh comments that we're going to be talking about coming at number 10 selling 16.7 million copies worldwide is u2 and the joshua tree one of your favorites i know you talked oh, yeah. about it in our first yep. episode yep uh very impactful album to yourself personally correct and it was an album that when it first came out i wouldn't say that it was a fan but it was on the charts for such a long time you're talking almost two years from first you know released hit single mm -hmm. to the last released single by the end i was i was on board i was i was a fan of the album uh, probably not as much as what you were but right i definitely grew to appreciate that album quite a bit mm -hmm. yeah that, that not surprised Number nine, 17.7 million copies worldwide. This is a forgotten album. No Jacket Required by Phil Collins. That is a bit of a forgotten album. Obviously, some people are going to say, of course I remember that album. But do you remember how big it was? It, it, especially if you talk about the MTV era, you could not uh, go through an hour of MTV without seeing a Phil Collins uh, video on, from No Jacket Required. And think about Live Aid, which I'm sure we'll probably spend an episode to talk about Live Aid, but who was like the star attraction of Live Aid? It, it was Phil. It, it was Phil Collins because he was the only performer to play at both venues. He started in Wembley mm -hmm. in England, and then he ended up flying on the Concord over to Philadelphia and, and finished the show out over there. Not only that, he also played drums for the Led Zeppelin reunion. As well. I mean, he was producing. He was pretty prolific 
during this time. And, he was. Uh, you know, No Jacker Required was already coming off of quite a, a bit of success, not only solo, but also with the band Genesis. Mm-hmm. And she, it was kind of like, you know, we, we, we talked about the Bee Gees, how people were getting sick and tired of hearing the Bee Gees. Maybe that happened a little bit to Phil Collins in the, in the mid-80s because he was kind of everywhere at, he was. at one point. Uh, he was in an episode of Miami Vice, you know, it, not just the music, but, he, you know, he was acting and other things as well. It, he... I think that you're correct when you say it's a, you know, it's kind of like the BJ's. I mean, to me, it was a case where I, I was starting to get a little tired of watching Phil. Coming in a tie at number seven. Uh, one album, not really a big surprise to anybody. Another one, you might be surprised. Bad by Michael Jackson, 21.1 million copies sold. Tied with Dire Straits, Brothers in Arms. Right. Uh, dire Straits was again. They were they were they were huge in the middle of that decade. They that Brothers in Arms uh, album, which I ended up buying a little bit later. I didn't have it when it first came out, but I did have it. Okay, uh, you know, wasn't wasn't in my heavy rotation, but it was a a band that I did appreciate. And Mark Knopfler is known as quite a guitarist, and uh, so they they had it was huge worldwide they were and as i went back and look at some of the looked at some of these lists i i i saw that as well you know the brother brothers at arms was on there and I remember thinking oh that's interesting yeah that's you know that is right they were big i would not have probably come up with that if you just quiz me randomly it, that that would have been such a huge album and like you i kind of liked it i never owned it. it it was something where i i appreciated the singles uh, the videos that were MTV, obviously Money for Nothing was was a big major breakthrough, but there were other songs like on previous albums that I probably liked a little bit more. Um, you know, Soul and Swing, um, Skate Away. I was uh, kind of like that video back okay. in the early days of, right. of MTV, and but it, it was a good album. It's I think that's a case with Brothers in Arms where it it, it appealed to a broad audience. I think that was something where teenagers, sure, they liked it. People in their 20s like death, but it was approachable for somebody in their 30s and even their 40s where you might have been a Dire Straits fan from the 70s, and this kind of carried over. Right, because they had been around for a while. Right. Yeah, they, they were no, they were, they were not uh, an up-and-coming band. They had been around on the charts for about 10 years at that point. Mm-hmm. And so this was sort of that renaissance period where there were a lot of bands from the 60s and 70s that were sort of making comebacks during that time. Just to name a few, the Moody Blues... The Monkees, the Grateful Dead, the Grateful Dead, uh, the Doobie Brothers. Not too long after that, they sure. they had a, you know sort of a comeback as well. So yeah, they kind of fit into that. Not that they ever stopped. I mean, Dire Straits was still making albums in the in the early '80s, but uh, you know there was a, there was a time period where some of the what was old became cool again. And sure. I think that happened for quite a few groups, but uh, it was not a it wasn't a throwback sound by any by any stretch. You know. Money for Nothing was played all over the place on MTV, and uh, you know it was it was at least huge on MTV. And you'll see the MTV influence with a lot of a lot of things that we're probably going to sure. talk about later. Number six, twenty-two million copies sold. Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen. I don't think that's a shock to anybody. No. He was a huge deal. And think about it again. Here's a guy who had been around for quite a while. You know, Springsteen was making albums in the early 70s, and here he is 10 years later. He almost got to the point where he gave up on uh, thinking that he was going to be 
uh, you know, a superstar performer, he was writing songs for other people. He actually wrote um, the song um, "Hungry Heart." Was not originally. He wasn't. He was writing it for. I think it was the Ramones. Okay, that he was writing that song for them. Instead, his uh, his manager said, "No, no, it's too good. You got to keep it yourself." At that point, he kind of resigned himself to the fact that I'll play music because I enjoy it, but I'm going to write hit songs for other people. So Springsteen was somebody that had a lot of credibility. You know, coming out of the '70s, he was. Uh, you know, looked at as, you know, kind of the musician's musician. He was, in a way, a an updated version of Bob Dylan. It was somebody that, if you were kind of a music snob, you probably liked Bruce Springsteen. And he hits it big with Born in the USA. And I bet there were a lot of people that were the, the hardcore Bruce Springsteen fans weren't happy that now the masses embraced him like they did because now they kind of had to share him with everybody else. It... It was something where he was a big deal. I mean, he, he was a name, but he wasn't somebody that was, I would say, like the huge arena act that he became. He, he, during the ni- uh, 1984, 85, during Born in the USA, he was a stadium act. Mm-hmm. And you know, he's he's probably continued that. I mean, it's amazing that he's been able to s- sustain the career the way he has. He's one of the best, I think, ever in in rock history to be able to be just as good with the E Street Band and out there being loud and mm-hmm. playing rock music and just as easily move into a, a stage where it's just him. I mean, I watched his Broadway show on Netflix and it was just him up there and he's just strumming his guitar and he's telling stories and singing songs and it was captivating. I mean, that's that's kind of what hooked me on going back and, and kind of relearning Springsteen music. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we talk about favorite albums, there is one album which was not born in the USA, almost made my cut, and I was going to mention it. Tunnel of Love. Tunnel of Love. Sure. Yeah, and that and that is such a well. It, obviously, um, you know, he tells a story as a as a songwriter, but that is a much more intimate album than Born in the USA. Born in the USA is kind of loud. It's got a lot of songs that are in your face. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's meant to perform. And whereas Tunnel of Love is a little more introspective, you know, he's going through a tough time in life. And um, one of the songs that I, I think I identified with when it came out because I wasn't having a very good time. I think I was going through a breakup with a girlfriend back in the day, but one step forward, you know, the one step forward, sure. two steps back. Yeah. Um, that is about as depressing a song, but I I loved it because it it registered with me at that particular time. I mean, it, you talk, want to talk about a song that hit home? That's a song that hit home. So, you know that that is the brilliance of him, where he can he can be loud, he can be, um, you know, entertaining in front of the crowd, but he can also be he can also be quiet, he can also be thoughtful, and he can and his uh, his songwriting the lyrics are are pretty good. And while we're not talking about Tunnel Love, you're talking about Born in the USA, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I would agree specifically with Tunnel Love that I think the lyrics get a little bit deeper. And you're right, Born in the USA was meant to kind of be loud and proud. It, it, it's almost like he wrote the songs for the stadium, which he eventually started playing in stadiums, and it fit perfectly for what he was doing. And it's not that, you know, lyrically, he, he you know, he dumbs anything down, mm-hmm. but it's not quite the, you know, the introspective, as you say, uh, you know, from what the previous albums were, what comes later on. It's like he had that moment. He He kind of... Almost like we talked about David Bowie in Let's Dance. He had his moment where he was he was a pop star, 
And he said, okay, that's good, but I don't necessarily want to be that anymore. And so I think he intentionally changed a little bit, you know, moving forward. But born in the USA, I mean, it's hard to to name an 80s uh, uh, list, uh, an album list, and not have that on it. I... I'm not sure where I read it, but I, I'm not going to take credit for this. I, this was something that I, I read. Somebody was writing about Springsteen's music and his albums, and they all seem to kind of have a um, kind of a lineage to it in that his earlier albums, you know, he's the young up-and-comer. It's Thunder Road. Come on, baby, get on my, you know, get in my car, and we'll we'll get out of this town, Freehold, New Jersey. We're going we're gonna to make something of mm-hmm. our lives. And then by the time you get to... Uh, you know Nebraska, where he's singing about Atlantic City. It's like his his world's blowing up. You know, that's that's things, a depressing album. Things things are not going well, and and I think Born in the USA is like the defiance of the guys. Like like what, uh, you know, I was supposed to be better than this. I mean, Glory Days doesn't not sum that up any better. You know, a guy who is reliving the past uh you know his glory days where he's sitting in a bar t- telling stories kind of like what we're doing right now <laughs> you know, as a matter of fact you're taking the words right out of my mouth but no i i refuse to believe that that's not what we're doing right now we're not living in the past we're uh we're celebrating the past okay because okay. you, you can have your glory days there's nothing Absolutely. wrong with that yeah all right all right so uh number six was springsteen um 22 million copies number five Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction, 1987 album, and uh, huge album for me uh, oh, yeah. personally. I I think the you know this is one of the, to me one of the greatest rock albums ever ever made. Um, made a huge impression on me. And what I found so interesting about Appetite for Destruction, uh, and I'll probably get into a little bit later, is that it took so long for it to to chart. This album was out for a year before it even started to get any kind of radio play or, or really start to sell copies. I'll get into that sure. in a little bit, but uh, you know, yeah, Appetite, because hint, hint, it's on my list as well, <laughs> so we can get into so, it later. Appetite for Destruction, number five, uh, twenty-two point eight million copies sold. This one will probably surprise some people. At number four is Bob Marley and the Whalers. Legend came out in nineteen eighty-four and has sold twenty-two point nine million copies worldwide. Reggae music, uh, you know, it's not really something that that we were exposed to where we where we grew up. And this is, you know, Bob Marley. I had heard of the name Bob Marley. I actually probably heard the name Ziggy Marley before I heard of Bob because Ziggy had a few hits in the eighties. Uh, but Bob Marley was not somebody that was on my radar when I was, you know, growing up during this time period. That being said, it is one of my favorite wedding reception cocktail hour uh see you know albums to play for people because it's just such great background music and anybody that's into reggae or probably into bob marley's going you got to be kidding me you can't tell me that you've uh you know lyrically uh what marley used to you know his words and and words of protest and and pride and you know he's known as a poet Mm -hmm. and i'm playing it for (laughs) for a cocktail hour but uh you know uh, as far as as far as the reggae vibe um i got you know started to enjoy reggae music specifically because of this album so my really my exposure to reggae probably was through the police so that's kind of you know there there were some bands like that in the early 80s that had a little bit of reggae feel i you know i i, I think we may have mentioned on a previous podcast that uh the uh what was it, Maneater? 
by then John Oates write Man Eater and he he wrote it it was actually a reggae song when he wrote mm-hmm. it and then and then it got changed because now when they kind of play it they'll do the the reggae version sometimes yeah. it, so there were people that influenced us were influenced by reggae but for me personally I never really directly listened to reggae yeah but it you know obviously number 4 on sure. the list of all Some time some people are it's uh you know it's pretty impressive number 3 again this is going to surprise folks Came out in 1987, sold 24.1 million copies, was the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. Not shocked at that at all. Really? No, not at all. You never hear, I mean, when do you ever hear about the Dirty Dancing soundtrack? Occasionally, you'll see the movie uh, continue to pop up on on cable TV, but this may be, I don't know, maybe one of the really, truly last great, uh, well, I would say The Bodyguard was uh, sold the most of any soundtrack, but... This is the era of soundtracks and having multiple singers with multiple hit songs on it was kind of starting to dwindle at this point. In 87 when this came out. Yeah. But it, it was such a, we're talking pop culture, This is that was a cultural phenomenon, not just at the movie theater. You know, obviously Dirty Dancing was a movie. Mm-hmm. But the in the in on the radio stations that we listened to, it was heavy, heavy rotation, and I, I, I just can I remember that they would release song after song after song, and they would shoot up the charts. Uh, it was and I was surprised when when Patrick Swayze himself introduced uh, releases a song and it becomes a hit. Yeah, I think it went to number two or something like that. It was, um, she's like the wind. He, yeah, he he co-wrote it. I don't think um, I don't think people realize that as well, but he, he co-wrote the song, sang it. And virtually, basically insisted that it would be put on the soundtrack. He he really felt felt strongly about the song, and it's hard to deny it. I mean, it was a huge, huge hit. And, of course, uh, The Time of My Life with Bill Medley and Jennifer Warrens is an all-time classic. That still gets played, you know, weddings today as, like, the, the going-away song for the bride and groom. Um, not only that, but they I think they... Because the movie had, you know, was set in the 1960s with, you know, Jennifer Grey's baby, uh, she and and the music, they they threw in a lot of the old, you know, they threw some throwback songs in there, and then they threw some new songs in there as well. So I think it was a it was a great mix, and it, the whole the whole soundtrack really flowed. Like you could put it on side one, and just let it play, and there was no. Uh, you know, there wasn't anything obscure on there. It was just one hit song after another, and and it, it, you know, I had it. You know, I had the soundtrack. So, so here's here's why I knew this was going to be big on the list is I I saw an interview not too long ago with uh, Frankie Privetti, who was the as some of you may remember, he was the lead singer of Frankie and the Knockouts. So Frankie, when he was between record deals. He was approached about writing some songs for the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. And he wrote uh, Time of Our Lives and Hungry Eyes. And he said those two songs, ever since this album has been released in 1987, in royalties, he has averaged $500,000 a year. Wow. And he said sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's lower. He said he can always tell when the movie is like released on TV or, you know, there'll be a little spike. Mm-hmm. But consistently, for 35 years, he said he's been in that average. And you mentioned the song Hungry Eyes, which was sung by Eric Carmen, mm-hmm. who was a big deal in the 70s. But by the time the soundtrack comes out, I when I, found, when I heard the songs that he sang, uh, 
you know, I okay, I now I know who you're talking about, but Eric Carmen wasn't on anybody's radar in 1987, no. and this was this was a huge, huge comeback hit for him. He ended up releasing an album that became successful on the back of the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. He had a, a, a album that came out in '88 um, and had another hit song, you know, through that. So. You know, kudos to the people for putting that soundtrack together. And Dirty Dancing was not a. I think I went. Uh, I was in high school. I think it was my junior year in high school. Uh, I was brought into watching that movie, Kicking and Screaming. I did not want to watch Dirty Dancing, but we had a big group of friends, and it was all guys and girls. And the girls demanded that the guys watch the movie Dirty Dancing. And as we're watching the movie, it wasn't the movie so much that I liked as it was the music in sure. the movie. And that's kind of what pulled me in. And I was like, ah, you know, the songs, it's good songs, good music. And, and that's, that's what hooked me on, on the movie and, and then the, uh, obviously the soundtrack. So, so last episode we did 16 Candles. 16 Campbell, Candles is a great movie. Dirty Dancing, it's good. It's not bad. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I appreciate it for, for what it is. I appreciate for what it where it was in the pop culture, but I love the soundtrack. Okay, uh, the music is what drew me in. I I could take or leave the movie, right? But I just the other week, without even knowing we we're going to be doing this episode, I put this album on my Spotify. Uh, you know, I, I wrote up on Spotify and listened to the whole album. Okay, so number two and number one, I don't think are really going to surprise too many people. Um, number two is ACDC, Back in Black, was released in 1980. Mm -hmm. 30.1 million copies sold internationally. Amazing. What a huge album for a band that, at that point when they released the album, didn't even know if they were going to have a band because their previous lead singer had just died. Right. They had already had plans to make the new album. They had songs written. Bon Scott had already done some uh, demos. And then they go up to, they were going to take a little bit of a break before they were going to start recording and he dies. So they were going to, they were going to disband. He died from a night of mischief, I believe is the official yes. police record or the, the, the coroner's report said it was a, a night of mischief, a, you know, bond, a heavy night of drinking, falls asleep in the car. You know, there's a lot of speculation. You know, some people think, you know, he might've, you know, vomited and choked and, you know, but it was cold, you know, there's different things out there. But the fact is, they were on the verge of hitting it big, at least in the U.S. Yes, and now the lead singer passes away, and then so they bring in this 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 Brit who's is a bit older. You know, uh, Brian Johnson had already had a career back in the '70s uh, with a band called Geordie, and he was kind of out of the music business. And they bring him back in. He, you know, and you talk about you know Bond maybe doing some demos. Uh, the they, that's up for some debate. You know, that that's still a bit of an area for argument among the ACDC loyalists out there. There's those who say that, you know, Brian Johnson wrote all the lyrics. Others will say, well, Bonds did some of them. But you are correct in saying that the music was relatively finished. I mean, the, the Young Brothers, right. Malcolm and Angus, had already kind of written the songs. Uh, and then, like I said, it, it's, you know, a little bit of a debate whether whether Brian wrote everything. At least on the album, it's credited as Brian writing everything. Well, Brian claimed, Brian, you know, and I believe him. You know, he, you know Bon Scott had, had written lyrics to the music that the the youngs had created and then brian rewrote okay so he came up with he took the same music wrote his own lyrics uh did not use bond scots because as they said it i believe as as i read it that they didn't want to put anything on there that would feel like they were stealing from bond scott so they wanted to start over that was that was my understanding what they did with the album they basically redid everything that even though he had put a lot of work into it 
uh, they didn't use any of it for the new album. And so. it should be noted, too, that the producer of Back in Black was the famous Mutt Lang. Mutt Lang. And Mutt yeah. Lang, will, will, that name will come up again, whether it's in the, uh, this current episode or in the future, uh, when we get deeper into some of these uh, the songs and artists. But Mutt Lang was was a huge force in the 1980s. Sure, and you want to talk about probably Mount Rushmore of producers. He, his, his face it's has got to be, be up there. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be names tossed around, you know, producers like he's he's every bit as prolific as Quincy Jones, as right. L.A. Reid and Babyface. You know, he's he's up there with that group. So, uh, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely a classic back in black. Great album. And the number one album of all time still is to this day, 40 years after it was released is Thriller 50.4 million copies sold. Now, this is internationally because one of the things that I read was that in the United States, the Eagles' greatest hits yeah. over oversold Thriller. But in terms of international sales, Thriller is still number one and, and is uh, has been, you know, 40 years from the day it came out. And it, it I don't see it uh, losing its perch upon the, uh, the top of the mountain anytime soon. Okay. All right, so we've spent a lot of time before talking about Thriller. So now I'm going to throw a little wrinkle into this, okay? Yeah. So we just covered of all time top sales of all time i think you'll find this interesting when we break it down year by year all right now this is the u.s only this was the only um format that i could find it on so i do apologize if you are listening uh outside of the states uh this was all i could find but i think yeah, it relates to everybody anyway so who sean without if you were looking at my paper i wasn't no <laughs> who was the top set what was the top album sold in 1980 uh, my guess, do, 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 um, I, I'm going to say it may have been Ario Speedwagon's High Infidelity. You got 1981 correct. Okay. That was 1981. It was released in 80. I believe but so, then yeah. It, yeah. 1981, yeah, right. it was the number one selling album. 1980 was Pink Floyd's The Wall. Okay. Which is funny because, you know, you go back to our list of all time, Back in Black was released in 1980. Sure. But yet... It didn't wasn't the top selling album of that year. Pink Floyd was the top selling album of that year. So you kind of see where I'm going with this. All okay. Right? All right. So Sean already guessed 1981, 1982. Well, the the logical guess would be Thriller, but Thriller had I think most of its success in '83. Uh, I'm still going to say Thriller. Asia. 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 Their debut album. The debut album. Okay, yeah. Heat of the moment. Asia yeah. and only time will tell and. You framed an Asia poster. Who does that? Tell me they weren't laughing at you at the poster store when you gave them an Asia poster. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. That's the 40-year-old version, right? That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, Yeah. Asia was a top-selling U.S. uh, Sold the most number of albums in the U.S. But I'm not surprised. So, you know, a little bit about, you know, Asia. I mean, they were they were kind of an offshoot of some major prog bands that came out there. You know, it was Yes, um, you know, The Buggles. Uh, you know Emerson Lake and Palmer so these were artists that um, uh, you know Steve Howe you know the guitarist was kind of like one of the main guys and and he had been in Yes but they were to me they were one of the first bands that I remember that was billed as a super group exactly so they came in with a built-in fan base because they were drawn from these different different uh, areas and different bands and so I'm not surprised because that got a lot of heavy airplay on the radio, also on, on MTV as well in the early days of MTV. And they had they had some 
some rabid fans that would have gone along with them. Absolutely. Okay. I think you probably already guessed 1983 and 1984. So this particular artist the really was in 84 as well. It was the top sales sales in uh, 83 and 84. That's that's pretty impressive because 84 was a was a big year for music, and there's a lot of other artists uh, releasing big albums. Yeah, but when you're talking about seven top ten hits, yeah. off a ten song album, uh, you know the songs being released, you know, a couple months apart from each other, and how many how many years it charted. And like, like we said, it was released in 1982 okay. and the girl is mine with uh, Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson. That was the first single that was released off the album. And then by the very end, you're talking almost a three year period. It's, that's, that's quite a long time. So 83 and 84 was Michael Jackson. Okay. Right? 1985. I'm going to say Bruce Springsteen born in the USA. Correct. Ding, ding, ding. You got it right. Uh, Springsteen, nobody was bigger in, in 1985. And there were some big name people that were putting time uh, putting albums out at that same time you got uh you know jackson was coming down with thriller but you had madonna you had we talked about phil collins you had prince and the revolution um who are some of the other i mean there's so many that uh, you know even sting had had come out with a solo album at that point mm-hmm. that was that was uh huge so everybody was making music and that was the great thing about the charts i mean if you were number one for more than a couple of weeks that was saying something because right. there was music just churning behind you. They were, they were cranking out hit songs left and right at that at that time. Right, exactly. All right, nineteen eighty six. So this one's tough because uh, the artist that I'm thinking of, I don't think I'm going to guess it anyways. It would be Bon Jovi with "Slippery When Wet," but "Slippery When Wet" was released later in eighty six and had a lot of success in eighty seven. So I think it kind of had a carryover. So probably for the the year of eighty six. It's probably not the top album, but that's what I'm going with. Okay, you guessed them in 1987. It was okay. Bon Jovi. So you're, you're you got the right idea for it what's was, going it, on. Could, right, it's released. It's just kind of I, I I it's like the fall of '86 is kind of when Slippery right. When Wet came out. The top album sales in the United States in '86 was Whitney Houston. Yeah, that, with, right. with her debut yeah, album. I should have guessed that one. Yeah, she was in '86. She was such a fresh face that came onto the music scene, and um, I listen to the songs then and now and probably the one uh, how will i know that was probably the the, the one song that probably has got to remember i'm 15 so I, I, I'm, I'm definitely not going to be into a lot of whitney houston pop music but right. i did i think anybody who's honest with themselves probably said, yeah, yeah you know there was a whitney houston song that you liked i sang along to that one in the car absolutely all right so you guess 1987 slippery one wet bon jovi 1988 guns and roses no not appetite they, for destruction. They did not make the list. Okay, but you're not going to be surprised when you find out who. How it about is. New Kids on the Block? Nope. All right, Millie Vanilli. No, nope. I, I don't know. Go ahead. Faith, George Michael. You know that that is that almost made my list of albums I was going to pick. Yep, sure, makes total sense. It's a great album. Yeah. yeah, and and it was 1988. That was that that fall of '87, spring of '88. That entire year, he dominated the charts. I think he had four number ones in in like a six or seven month period i think it was yeah that was a huge album in, in high school with uh you know with our friends that that was played all the time and the that album came out i think in the summer of 87 is when it started and the reason i'm, I'm pretty sure of that at least for the first signal i want your sex was the first thing that was released is scott and i throughout our high school years we worked at this this kind of amusement park which doesn't exist anymore it was called the water buggy water slide and we were at it was the before the season opened 
You know, mm-hmm. we would always, every year, a group of us would go in before the season open and get the slide, get the park ready for the uh, for the guests for the upcoming year. And we would, you know, they would take all the uh, the water out of the pools and we would scrub the pools. And I remember scrubbing the pool and uh, Rob Fisher, uh, one of our co-workers, uh, walking in the pool singing that song uh, in the summer of 87. <laughs> I remember what I remember about uh, that particular song. I want your sex is Casey Kasem would refuse to introduce it as its title. So we, that, he was playing the "I Want Your Love" version. He would call. He would announce it as "That Song" by George Michael. Oh, really? Yeah. Yep. He did not. He didn't want to know parts of it because they they did have two versions. They eventually made a second version. Yeah, yeah. and and the one was that kind of the this you know the sterile version was "I Want Your Love." Yeah. Yeah, but nobody wanted to hear that. Right. And and the I Want Your Sex. Well, I think what really happened was it showed up on the Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack, Beverly Hills Cop 2 soundtrack. Okay. And uh, it, it was, it was, it kind of got new legs and got a new life, you know, all over again once the soundtrack came out. And it, it ended up being, it ended up charting for quite a long time. But that was. He threw that at, he he did the single and then added it to the album Faith but Faith is from top to bottom just got one hit song after another. Okay. 1989. So I'm going to guess it's going to be one of two. It'd be my guess is it going to be New Kids on the Block or it's going to be um Bobby Brown. I'm going New Kids. Uh Bobby Brown. Bobby Brown. Don't be right. cruel. Don't be cruel. Uh one of my favorites. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. Um yeah, 1989. Sort of ushered in a whole new sound, the New Jack Swing. Correct. And kind of a pioneer. It turns out the new edition was not New Jack Swing, but when they split and Bobby Brown went his way and Bell Biv DeVoe went their way, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden this whole new uh, style of music came in. And really, there's going to be somebody I'm going to talk about that really deserves the credit and I, you got to give credit to Bobby Brown for insisting that this person become involved with the making of his record because Ellie Reed and Babyface were already signed on to do it. He insisted on bringing in Teddy Riley, and I'm going to talk about Teddy later. Okay. But uh, Teddy, to me, is the father of New Jack Swing music, and he started this, ushered in this whole realm of uh, you know this new era of of a sound, and got combined with rap, and it became hip hop as we know it today. Well, you know, you had mentioned earlier, Scott, that you know you'll kind of see the our, our, the differences in our taste uh, as as you know we kind of reveal some of the the albums that we were listening to. I was, you know, definitely still kind of in the in the rock world, mm-hmm. but I liked Bobby Brown a lot, and I liked New Jack Swing, and I really, really enjoyed. Bell Biv DeVoe and, and uh, New Edition and, and all, everything that was part of it. Now, it wasn't my main thing, but I certainly liked it. I certainly listened to it a lot. But I think that's something where, where you and I are, we have these similar interests and they kind of cross over. And, but so th- I don't know that there's anything that you like that I don't like somewhat mm-hmm. and, and kind of vice versa. Yes. Now, we might push the edges a little bit where the other person's like, yeah, that's not necessarily my thing. But this is one where. I wasn't necessarily going to be going to a Bobby Brown concert, although in retrospect, I kind of wish I had seen Bobby Brown in 1989. That would have been a great show. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I still would would go out and see him right now. You know, next time he comes around, um, I mean, that's I. You know, I you were, you were probably going to see me at a Guns N' Roses show before you're going to see me at a, at a Bobby Brown show, but still, I still liked him. 
I it's probably going back maybe 10 years ago. Um, you know, my oldest son, your nephew, Gavin, when he was in, you know, late high school, probably early college uh, age, I was, we're just talking about old music and I, I showed him the video of every little step by Bobby Brown. Mm -hmm. All right. And it's just him and was brothers, one of the backup dancers, but it's him and a couple of dancers. And there's really, there's no special effects to the video. They have the, you know, the, the, every little step uh, in letters behind them. Yes, they do. But it's based, it's just a guy dancing and, you know, entertaining the camera. And that's a rarity for somebody that has the skill and ability to do that and to keep you captivated on watching the video itself. He's, he was at that time, he was so joyful and so likable. Uh, you know, obviously he had his you know, problems that later on down the road, but in terms of an entertainer, I mean, that guy's, that guy's a flat out entertainer and so skilled. But how amazing is it that, um, the husband and wife team of Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown own the 1986 spot and the 1989 spot? Uh, I mean, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yep. So there's your list of, um, you know, the, the top 10 by year in the United States. Hello, everyone. It's Scott from the Brothers High, Gen X Playback. Our conversation on top albums of the 1980s will be continued again next week. And we hope you enjoyed the first part of it where we covered the highest selling albums of the 1980s. We broke it down by not only uh, overall sales, but we also broke it down year by year. So hopefully you found some interesting albums on there that maybe you forgot about or maybe you're glad that that was brought up again. So hope you enjoyed the first part of our conversation. Uh, next episode, part two, we're going to discuss Sean's favorite albums of the 1980s as well as mine, Scott's favorite albums of the 1980s. And we have a little bit of criteria in there, so hopefully you can think about some of your favorite albums of the 1980s and bring that to the table as well. So maybe we'll mention yours. Maybe we didn't mention yours. But as we said before, everybody, uh, there's no right or wrong when we come to favorite albums of all of the 1980s or of all time. And hopefully you'll enjoy our conversation. We'll talk to you next time here on Gen X Playback. I'm Scott. Take care.